Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. This is a coronavirus special with Nick Hudson from pandata19.org. Welcome to the show, Nick. Tell us about your journey to pandata19.org. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be with you guys. And um, yeah, uh, be, be happy to, to share a little bit about our journey. Um, Panda is a, initially a team of volunteers that um, uh, started first as a group of friends, just summer, just looking at what was going on in the world in terms of the emergent COVID crisis. And um, it was initially a commercial and intellectual curiosity matter. Um, and as the whole narrative around the coronavirus epidemic grew to fever pitch, we became more and more alarmed about what we were seeing happening. Um, when lockdowns started being proposed in nations other than China, we became really alarmed. Um, and it seemed to us that there was a great departure between the underlying scientific reality and the, um, the, the hysteria, frankly. Um, in the early data that we were looking at, it was clear that this was not going to be a very significant um, epidemic from a purely uh, medical point of view. The Diamond Princess numbers that uh, came to us in March were indicative of something that was in same ballpark as uh, as a, a bad a bad season of flu, um, and that it was not something that was going to kill tens of millions of people. And that was very, very clear very early on. Um, when our lockdown in South Africa came, we were a bit resigned to it because by then these lockdowns had cascaded all around the world. Um, and we were, as as with most countries, promised three weeks to give the hospitals time to prepare to flatten the curve as it was. Started studying some of these models. were very alarmed by the assumptions they were making because to... To make one of these models flatten sufficiently to make a difference to the hospital system, you have to really have a big impact on the um, uh, the reproduction rate in the, the model assumptions. And the, those impacts looked wholly implausible to us. So we were very skeptical about the idea of curve flattening from the start. Um, and then the inevitable, you know, uh, with hindsight, I suppose, our lockdown was extended and extended and extended. And we're now sitting in day 211 of the South African lockdown. Um, as we went, uh, we looked at the situation at the beginning. Lockdown in South Africa was hugely popular. Everybody thought it was the bee's knees. President was doing a great job showing some leadership, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very hard to speak out. Um, there were also regulations uh, in terms of which you could be prosecuted for spreading fake news about the epidemic. And um, so it was a difficult situation. We got together with, uh, by then we'd been joined by another actuary. So it's an act a couple of actuaries, a lawyer, economist, um, data scientist, a doc some doctors. <clears throat> got now probably 10 people involved by that stage. And we put together a paper using basic actuarial mathematics um, called quantifying the years of life lost to lockdown, in terms of which we simply argued that um, the mortality impact uh, mediated by the economic impact would be much greater than any life-saving that the lockdown could plausibly do. 
And we put that paper out into the media, sent it to all the ministers. In the background, we had been talking to all the government agencies, trying to get a conversation going. But we continually found that despite having personal connections into many of them, the, doors, the door was closed. Um, we developed over time quite a substantial media and social media following. Uh, at the moment, we must be closing in on 200 media appearances, articles, webinars, podcasts, television appearances. We did further analytical work looking at uh, trying to unpick the causal structure behind the vast differences between mortality rates in different countries. And that was a particularly interesting piece of work. Um, the flavor of it in the media is that there's only one reason why one country would differ from another, and that's lockdown. Um, our research indicated, in fact, exactly the opposite. There are lots of reasons why one country differs from another. Um, we built a big generalized linear model, uh, putting all these factors to the test. And what we found that age and comorbidity prevalence and obesity prevalence were relevant. But one thing that was absolutely irrelevant in determining a mortality rate in a country or the duration to its peak mortality was lockdown. There was absolutely no correlation. Um, this came, the, the total absence of correlation came as a bit of a surprise, but by then we'd already noted that the anticipated effects in terms of discontinuities in the reproduction rate um, of the virus um, were, were nowhere in evidence. If you took a, um, what, the second derivative curve of, the, of deaths in, uh, in Sweden and compared it to Spain, it didn't look at all different. If you asked a a talented statistician to look at a country's epidemic curve and tell you when it locked down and when it released its lockdown, it would be impossible. They would not be able to do that. In short, there were no indications of any kind of regime change, whether you were talking about the implementation of lockdown or the release of lockdown where that happened. And so we became as convinced as we are right now, quite quickly, that lockdowns are wholly ineffective um, non-pharmaceutical in intervention. Extending our work into other NPIs, we found exactly the same. Mask mandates had no effect, for example, no discernible effect in the data anyway. Um, and about two months ago, we came to the conclusion that in South Africa, the situation was no longer about the science or public health. It, things had become entirely political, that the solution would only be found if we found a way to um, solve the international problem, which is really that uh, the World Health Organization, which is meant to look after people's well-being, was doing exactly the opposite. And that other international governments were providing air cover to ours by pursuing the same malarchic uh, aims and policies. Um, and we looked around to see if there was an organization elsewhere in the world that we could sort of be subsumed into. Uh, there were some networks of doctors speaking out and one thing and another, but no real organized uh, body that had done research and set up a capacity to analyze the data that had substantial membership and sub substantial volunteer e energy being poured into it. Uh, so we just decided to take Panda International. Um, and we started by reaching out to some of the epidemiologists who by then had been speaking out and we established a scientific advisory board, the membership of which consists of um, uh, Professor Kuldoff from Harvard University, Professor Gupta from Oxford, Professor Bhattacharya from Stanford, Professor Bhakti from University of Mainz, and uh, Professor Michael Levitt 
uh, Nobel laureate 2012, who um, constitute our advisory board now. And the, the working team of volunteers in South Panda now numbers around 80, uh, consisting of scientists, data analysts, and the scientists include immunologists, geneticists, all sorts. Um, there are actuaries, economists, even an actress. But um, that's the story. And here we are. You've mentioned uh, the WHO. Um, how familiar are you with the work of uh, Dr. Rainer Fulmich? Yes, we've been following that with great interest. And I think his case, whether it's successful or not, is going to blow the lid off a lot. My, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, because my understanding is, for, for those who aren't familiar with the, the, pers the, the person involved, he's a German uh, consumer rights lawyer who has some form, has some history of, of, of successfully suing. I think the, the, the companies mentioned in his sort of CV include Deutsche Bank, Volkswagen and Kuhn and Nagel. And it, it, as I understand the presentation from, from what I've seen online, the sort of 50 minute presentation he gave um, a few weeks ago and then mysteriously got pulled by YouTube um, after having math, you know, racked up one and a half million views is that he's, he's going after the WHO on the basis that this is not a, a coronavirus pandemic, it is a PCR test pandemic. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I, I I mean, that's one of the bases. Um, we follow that with great interest. There, there is all sorts of nonsense going on with the PCR testing uh, uh, setup. Um, in the first place, um, we are seeing countries deploying uh, massive, what are called the cycle thresholds of these tests, um, which put the tests really way outside of the clinical domain um, into, the, into the territory where they will be producing many epidemiological false positives. So either you know, triggering positives in people who've got no chance of transmitting, even if they are infected, or people who have had past infections and have viral debris floating around in their bloodstream, or entire false positives where you're picking up on protein strands from, you know, other coronaviruses and that kind of thing, um, uh, or or uh, from outside of the person's body contamination during the testing process. We've heard that in some labs in Canada, they're using 47 cycles, which is, you know, uh, compared to the 25 or 26, that would be the typical clinical threshold, maybe as high as 30. It's a massive difference because every single step upwards is a is a factor of two. So you, when you're talking about the difference between 47 and 27, that's two to the 20. It's in this, uh, it's, log, it's log mathematics. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, to to get to plunge straight into the um, the, the, the 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 meat of this. In your opinion, is, is where we now all seem to be, is that a result of cock-up or conspiracy or both? No, I'd, I've never seen conspiracy. This is too widespread and the bad agents are telling you exactly what they're doing. And that's not the hallmark of, of conspiracy. I mean, so uh, cock-up is, <laughs> is very relevant here, ineptitude on the part of politicians. And I think on, on the part of uh, scientific institutions, you know, science is well and good. Science will always be good. Uh, but the scientific institutions are behaving badly. They're, the whole thing's – the hysteria has been driven a lot by media and social media. And, and there there's been concerted pro propaganda efforts, especially by the Chinese, but by other governments everywhere as well. It's not just the Chinese. Um, 
So I don't see conspiracy, but as with anything in, in the world, you need to think about incentives. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, clearly the, 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 the firms that uh, are, have licensed these tests and so on and are making an absolute fortune and overcharging, oh, my word, overcharging for this testing like you won't believe by you know, an order of magnitude in some cases. Uh, clearly, you've got to think about their incentives. You've got to think about the Gates Foundation. What are they up to? Why is it? Where you know? Once you've decided that your ambition is to save the world, you kind of want to make sure that everybody thinks there's something to be saved from. You know, mm. so the incentives are all um, uh, uh, visible, um, and the actions are visible, um, and also the conflicts. I mean, there was this classic where uh, David Tabarro. Um, came out and said, listen, lockdown's the last thing you should be thinking of doing, really. And the very next day, um, Tedros is out saying exactly the opposite, you know. Um, so you've got two of the most senior figures in, in World Health Organization circles flat, con- flatly contradicting each other. Um, and you can see why as well. Where did Tedros come from? What's his background? What are his political proclivities? He uh, comes from a brutal socialist dictatorship in Africa, big friends with the Chinese, loves the socialist, commun- or should I say communist approach. Mm. Went, well, it was over there in a flash, congratulating them on the fine work that they've done in locking down, tearing up the textbook. I mean, all these organizations, this is the ironical <laughs> thing. If, you, if, you'd asked, if you'd asked any of these epidemiologists who are suddenly converts to the the mask wearing or the epidemiology or, or the or the lockdowns if you asked any of them in, in december last year what they thought about quarantining the healthy or cloth masks they would have they would have you know uh responded with plenty of snark you know what what nonsense we don't do that that's yeah, that's not the way to handle things um the world health organization the cdc any number of epidemiological journals have consistently if you read back back to prior prior to january this year They've consistently ruled these things out. And suddenly, it's as if that, that science never existed. So how do we get out of this mess? Well, the reason we decided that we needed to go in international was we, we discerned the need to organize. There, there are plenty of people out there, plenty of people out there with views congruent with ours. They're all sitting there shouting at social media, writing the odd article in conventional media, um, maybe having private discussions, maybe to p- trying to pick up the phone to their local politicians, uh, trying to make a, an impact breakthrough, be heard. Um, in the UK, I think of voices like Michael Eden, you know. Mm. Um, and then also people on the inside, uh, of, you know, people like Carl Hennigan, um, who are voices of reason in the face of this mindless hysteria. Um, and... It's fine. That's uh, obviously admire every single person who, who who sees through the through the nonsense here, but there's a need to get organised. You face very arrayed forces with with profound economic interests at, at stake. I mean, I look at an organisation like Davos talking about, uh, sorry, World Economic Forum, mm. talking about uh, the Great Reset and the need to you know just do a new normal and putting together teams of 30 people in various locations around the world to talk about how we're all going to change our lives to adjust to the horrible, deadly virus, um, I go cold. Um, I mean, that that's quite a lot of firepower behind all of that. Um, so sensible people the world o- or the world over need to organise. So what, what practically should have happened and what should we do now? So if you were in 
charge right now and you were deciding in South Africa and in other countries exactly how we should have dealt with this pandemic yeah. and we should from today onwards, what would that look like? Well, the very early numbers, I mean, from the very, very, the very earliest weeks of the, um, the pandemic, or at least the part that we were first aware of, right, made one thing abundantly clear, and it has remained abundantly clear, and that is that the mortality differential between the vulnerable and the non-vulnerable in, uh, in the face of this epidemic is enormous. It's, a, it's three orders of magnitude, a thousandfold. Okay? This, is, it, this disease simply presents negligible risk to young and healthy people. So the clear, the clear message that should have been deduced from that is that general lockdowns were entirely unnecessary and that what should have been done was that younger and non-vulnerable people should have gotten on with their lives and we should have addressed the question of how to protect the vulnerable. Um, I, would, I would suggest that protecting anybody should only ever be carried out by non-coercive means. I don't think it's right to um, forcibly isolate old people or anything of that nature. But certainly the first step would be to inform them about the risk. And in fact, what happened was there was a disinformation campaign, starting with uh, the fabulous conflation of the case fatality rate for coronavirus with the infection fatality rate for the flu uh, by Tedros, you know, 3.4% versus 0.1%. It's a, a, a terrible conflation to make because it's comparing two completely different things. You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely wrong. The implication, by implication, he was saying that 3.4% of all the people who got the disease were going to die, which was massively wrong. And, and by in, in light of the evidence available at the time. So I would have started by making it clear that this was going to be a, um, uh, a matter of keep everything going and let's focus on protecting the vulnerable groups. And that, that basically is everything. I mean, we can talk about the detail. What does it mean to protect the vulnerable? Well, that, that's very context-specific. So, you know, uh, it's been suggested, for example, that you would um, – uh, create uh, more possibilities for online shopping for, um, for older people or to in, in developed countries or to give them designated shopping hours where they can go free of clouds and, and, and uh, keep so, maintain social distance. Okay, those are sensible solutions in the UK or the US, but they're not gonna go very far in, a, in South Africa or, or Brazil. Um, in, in our countries, you need, you need different policies. And we made suggestions in May, we said, look, these are the things you th should think about doing. You should think about increasing the state old age pension because we have a lot of situations because of our history with the AIDS epidemic where you have orphan children who are looked after by the grandparents. And so helping them to secure child support or um, uh, you know, just to be able to afford to isolate themselves more would go a long way. And that would be a hell of a lot cheaper than, than shutting down the entire economy. We suggested using all the empty hotels to house people who wanted to self-isolate but didn't have the means to do so. We suggested um, depopulating nursing homes. You know, if, if you get a person, for, for the majority of people, this disease presents mildly. Um, so if you get a mild case in an, in an old age home, instead of um, trying to isolate them in the old age home, which is almost impossible in most settings, send them out to a young family let them go and infect that young family because that helps you get towards herd immunity. 
Um, you know, it's not dangerous for the young family and it keeps them away from the elderly vulnerable people that they live with. You know, we, we had these suggestions which were almost the opposite was playing out. If you looked at what went on in New York, they were sending sick people from the hospitals into the nursing homes, you know, basically conducting bio-warfare on the nursing homes. And um, I, 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 so, I mean, we, we would have taken this on very differently and we said so and have been saying so since May. Um, yeah. So your, your models correctly predicted where the peak would be in South Africa against, yes. against the official predictions, which said that it would peak in October. I believe you said, was it July that would be the peak? And it was. Now we, we've got what seems to be a second wave of infections coming through. Do your, does your model have a prediction as to where that will peak before it dies down again? So, again, we go back to this question of what these tests are doing. This isn't a second wave of infections. It's a second wave of PCR test results. Um, you, haven't got, you have not got a second wave of deadly virus. You know, the, if you look at the ratios here, I mean, the, what, what you're seeing is an explosion in positive test results, cases, as they call them, which is nonsense to call them cases, you know. Cases should be, you should only record a case if the person's symptomatic uh, to be springing, spraying around these, these uh, PCR tests and counting a case every time somebody triggers positive is nonsense. Um, but, you know, what, what you can see very visibly is that this so-called second wave is not accompanied by a second wave of deaths. There are negligible deaths occurring. Um, that it, it's as if the disease has gone endemic already. I think there's a great deal of confusion. There's an idea that you sort of will go through one wave and then you'll never see the disease again. You'll have achieved some kind of suppression. I don't think any serious epidemiologist would propose that. You know, this will become a background respiratory disease like flu, like adenovirus, like rhinovirus, you know, any, num any one of a number of respiratory diseases that circulate worldwide in the general population and flare up seasonally, um, depending on what part of the world you live in. Um, so I, I, I think you are not looking at a real second wave where there's, that's as bad as the first. You know, that's the idea. The scare tactic is to convince people that that thing you went through in March or whenever it was, whichever country you were in, that thing you went through in March, we're going through it again now. You know, that's the, and we've got to lock down again and we've got to wear the mask and, and so on. It's nonsense. You're going through a completely different story and it's much, um, a much lower incidence of death. And certainly, look, I mean, it, the, the, the lockdown policies were wrong in the first wave, and they're doubly wrong in the so-called second wave. The, the problem I have with all this is it's impossible to know really who to trust now. There's a, there's a catastrophic collapse in, in trust in institutions. The, the example I'd cite would be the media. So you've already pointed out that in March we had the, 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 the wave, of, and that was a wave of fatalities, and now the media's change the goalposts so now instead of fatalities they're reporting cases but as you said mm. the cases themselves uh need, leave an awful lot to be desired and if you were concerned about the the role of the media it, here in the uk we have a media regulator called ofcom and it, it is a matter of public record that they uh at the height of the crisis were informing all media that if they didn't tow the party line they they risked losing their licenses yeah so, that's so, so the truth could the truth couldn't be reported even even if people wanted to yeah I mean, there's the, the philosopher David Deutsch puts it very well. He says the, the greatest of all evils is the destruction of the means of error correction. And all of these 
cancel culture movements, this kind of uh, uh, freezing of free speech uh, that we've been seeing over the last few years is exactly what they do. When you cancel the mean of, means of error, error correction, you prevent knowledge from forming. And that's the last thing you want to do in the face of an epidemic. So basically, the fake news that has been shoved down the throats of populations by their governments is now the only news you're allowed to read. That's what you're saying. And the bad signs of all these conflicted scientists and corrupt scientists that's been shoved down the government's throats, that's the only science you're allowed to see. We've, we, I mean, there's a classic situation going on at the moment, this Danish mask study, the first proper randomized uh, control uh, trial of, um, uh, of, of cloth mask wearing. It's mysteriously not being published. Uh, they've applied at two journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine um, and um, the Lancet. And it seems to have been turned down for reasons that are somewhat murky. And what's being leaked at the moment into the, into the sort of public domain is that this test doesn't cast a very good, doesn't cast masks in a very good light. When science has gotten to this point where uh, findings are suppressed because they don't suit a political narrative, then we have truly lost the plot at a civilizational level, and I would say at, at you know, at, to the point where there is present an existential threat to civilization. So yes, the journalism and truth have departed, but now scientific institutions and truth are departing. You mentioned the number of tests showing positive, and and that's a figure obviously that's been out in the media, but looking behind the numbers, uh, from what I look at from the government data in the UK, you have the record of deaths, which as you say, is relatively low, but it's still on an upward trajectory, but it is still low. But also you have hospitalizations and there is a delay between somebody going into hospital with COVID and the amount of time before the death is recorded. The fear in the UK and the, the people who are, who are proponents of the lockdown are saying that because of that delay, we will we have to wait to see how the the um, the death or the person in the hospital then translates into a death, and th- there's anything up to a month delay between that person going into hospital and and an eventual death. So what they're saying is we're not looking at the true picture now; we're looking at the the picture that could be in say a month's time and the trend is going up. So therefore, that's why, invert commas, we need a lockdown. What, what would you say to that? Because these aren't cases. These are actual hospitals that apparently have, um, you know, they're, they're being tested at their level of capacity in various parts of certainly our country, and those numbers are going up. Can I share a screen with you? Please do, yeah. I would just say that's a narrative that is wearing rapidly thin. Just wait another two weeks, then you will see the deaths. That's where it, it's actually gone way past its sell-by date. Um, this virus hasn't mysteriously changed, you know, since March. And there you could see how far behind deaths, how, how far, by how much deaths lagged cases. Okay. So that was clear. The, the virus hasn't suddenly changed its incubation period and its uh, clinical process and so on in the intervening six months. We haven't got that good at treating it that we're forestalling death by, on average, weeks and weeks more. That, that story of just wait is gone. It's finished. Statistically, it's over. Look at this. This is a chart of um, 
Are you seeing the screen? Yes, we are. Um, so this is a chart of Western Europe's uh, cases in the top half of the chart and deaths in the bottom half. And you can see here, the, the, so obviously the two scales are different because otherwise you wouldn't be able to see the deaths. You know, I mean, it's, it's, to, in order to see the second wave of deaths, you have to magnify the deaths part of this curve. Um, and you can see there uh, the, the, the case epidemic emerging in the first wave and the deaths following a few weeks behind. Now look what happens. They jack up the testing, test lots of asymptomatic people and produce a bundle of epidemiological false positives. Garbage case, okay? Um, much bigger. It's got a peak, what, three or four times as high. And this is for the whole of Western Europe, okay? A peak three or four times as high. And yet the deaths are sitting at, what's that, about a sixth? So we're talking about 125th, the ratio of deaths to cases. There's nothing there. It's a nothing burger. And I don't mean to, to, to sound insensitive towards the people who are indeed dying, um, but... This, this, this chart, if you do not find this compelling, and if you're sitting there telling me just wait, then I, I scratch my head. So the, the trend is to the upside, and at some point that will turn and go back down again. Yes. Um, um, do you have any idea when that will be? Because as you said earlier, you, you don't believe in the conspiracy as to why this is yeah. government, all the governments are doing this in the same way. So yeah. at some point, when the deaths start to turn down, um, we hopefully will come out of lockdown very quickly. We might even, dare I say it optimistically, have something like a big bounce back. Um, could we put any timescale on potential a big bounce back in, the, in these economies? Well, the, one of the problems is that, the, you know, the, the, the people who are motivating these lockdowns keep on using the the natural subsidence of the epidemic curve as the motivator for the success of their particular form of voodoo. Um, so they come out, the, okay, now this, the, the next seasonal little ripple, we won't call it a second wave, the second ripple now starts subsiding. Wait, just you wait. Somebody will claim that that was because of the mask voodoo or the lockdown voodoo, okay? And the uncertainty of the scope for another seasonal outbreak next week, next year, if we continue testing everybody like a bunch of maniacs, we'll still be there. And watch out for that having a completely freezing effect on econ economies, this continual sense that we might at any point in time be shut down, that my business could be declared non-essential in this classic pseudo-Marxist kind of language. Um, that kind of stuff, I think, is really dangerous, and it, it's been there. I mean, the, the same journals that will not publish the randomized control trial of masks have been only too eager to publish articles that basically amount to post hoc ergo propter hoc reasoning or rain dance reasoning, you know, where they say, oh, look, you know, we, we did a lockdown, and then uh, eight weeks after the lockdown, the deaths have gone down. But that's kind of what, that's what epidemic curves do. I mean, Sweden didn't have a lockdown and its deaths went down. So they're quite happy to publish papers with this kind of absolute garbage um, philosophy of science at work. Um, and, you know, this becomes the narrative that the lockdown saved us all. So you've got to watch. I'm, I'm not so sure that this stuff just goes away. When people, people it, it's very hard, given the amount of political capital that's been 
allocated to lockdown and and other NPIs. Um, closing of schools, for example, is another chronic one because that if there's ever a costly bloody uh, initiative, there there you have it. Um, but there's a lot of vested or sunk costs in in these measures, and I think it's going to be very hard. I don't think these guys are going to go down without a fight. And so until until the general population wakes up to what's happened here and unelects the idiots, um, I, I think you're stuck with them. And bear in mind that they're getting air cover all the time from the World Health Organization, which has completely torn up the, the rule book of science and has gone on gone in for the, the, the theater. You've just, you've just answered a question I was just about to make, which is, do you envisage governmental changes as a result of this? In other words, as the truth finally emerges from the wreckage of the global economy, do you anticipate that a few governments are actually going to be unelected forcibly? Yes, I think there's going to be substantial institutional change in as ma- in, in many uh, sectors of society, governments being being one. Um, but I think the university, the entire university system, is is uh, at, is likely to undergo substantial change. Mm. There's been a there's been a massive and systemic institutional failure here. Um, it's a it's scientific institutions, political institutions, media institutions. In South Africa, even commercial institutions. I mean, basically, what's emerged here is a is a complete non-answer from the commercial sector. Uh, they've just gone along with the, the government positions, even though some of the CEOs of major businesses in South Africa have privately confided to, to me that they know that this is all overblown and wrong. They say, "Well, there's nothing we can do. You know, we go along with it. It's too risky for us to speak out." To that point, is there anything do you think that individual consumers, people, human agents can do to try and affect change? Of course. I mean, the, the more it, this is a game of numbers. And I think it's a lot. In, in general, I think I, I do believe that it is easier to convince people of a true story than to convince them of a false one. Um, so, you know, it's not a it, you're not fighting a losing battle. Um, people have been convinced of a false story. And, and you've really got to step back. You know, the entire story, every single element of the story is false. There's a new virus. No, there isn't. There's nothing really particularly new about SARS-CoV-2. It's almost exactly the same as SARS-CoV-1. It's an individuum of an existing virus. For that reason, we have cross-reactivity, protective immunity against it for the majority of the population. Uh, it's a deadly virus. No, it isn't. It's order of magnitude, same as flu. Uh, maybe equivalent to uh, uh, a, a bad season of flu for, for old people and less dangerous than the flu for young people. No, we have to lock down and wear masks, otherwise we're all going to die. Uh, no, lockdowns and mask mandates show no discernible impact in the data. We're all susceptible. No, we aren't, you know. So every element of the story is bogus and people will start waking up to that. And the more people wake up and the more there are people out there who are prepared to say, well, hold on a moment, I've been duped here by government, by media, I've been fed a lot of propaganda and I'm, I've believed it, I think that will be a, be a, there will be a, an increase in that over time. Um, the other thing that I think will happen is economic hardship begins to set in and that causes dissatisfaction. Um, that's the one that I, I kind of worry about. I mean, in South Africa, for example, out of 16 and a half million jobs, we've lost two and a half million, most of them semi-permanently. Mm. 
Um, and we've got a very high dependency ratio, so you can multiply by five or six to work out how many people have lost their incomes. Um, that's you know, probably getting close to 20% of the population. Uh, those people, and the government's incapacitated. I mean, the, the, the fiscal deficit is sitting at 40% or something outrageous. It's not too many, uh, you, can't, you can't foresee the country being able to borrow ad nauseum um, to plug the gap. Corporate, all the, all the tax revenues have plummeted and are not coming back because the, the businesses and people who paid them have had their incomes decimated. Um, actually, decimated is an understatement. This is not a tenth. This is a substantial fraction taken out of them. Uh, so, you know, I think this is going to get pretty real pretty fast. And, and hopefully there's uh, some common sense emerging in the process and people stop living in fear of the deadly virus that puts them behind their masks and locked up in their houses. Nick, you could have been a doctor. You, be, you became a, an actuary. Tell us, tell us a bit about you. <laughs> Yeah, I was. I grew, grew up in a medical family, and from uh, I think before I could even talk, I knew what a doctor was, and I was going to be a doctor until my last year in school, and then had second thoughts. Um, by then, I was starting to. I, I'd become a voracious reader. I was interested in music. You know, played several instruments. I, I loved the outdoors and the bush and the and and wildlife and forests and birds and so on. Um, so I'd become a bit of a, 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 a quintessential generalist, you know, um, and uh, going into a, a, a narrow um, field uh, that would kind of isolate you to one part of the world, stop being appealing. And some well-intentioned guidance counselor pointed me in the direction of actuarial science. You know, you're good at maths. Go and, go and do that, that, study that instead. You'll be fine and you don't have to work in that field. Um, and I, I sort of uh, half paid attention at university and passed uh, all the maths and stats and actuarial science, got out into the real world. By, I had a bursary from one of the local insurance companies, got out into the real world and find that I, I wasn't very well suited to that uh, actuarial department. But to the immense credit of the chairman of that company, I was pointed in the direction of some more interesting commercial projects. So I went and worked on those and had some success. And after stints in, in elsewhere in the world, in, in the last one in, in Manhattan, um, in, in the corporate finance universe, I returned to South Africa and found a fairly happy home for a, an intensely curious uh, bookish kind of person in private equity. And um, I've had a successful career, 15-year career in private equity, and I run my own private equity firm. Um, and uh, I love that because it takes you down uh, – you know, it's a, just an unbelievable playpen for a curious person. Every time you look at a business, there's a, a vast new territory to be explored and understood and new people with new angles on the world. Uh, so that's a, a delightful place to be. So I went, I, I drifted rather far from the, the knee of my beloved grandfather, who was a physician in the Eastern Cape. Um, uh, yeah. So with regard to your if we could switch tax slightly to to the financial markets because obviously we can ask you questions sure. about that do you what opportunities do you see come given the pandemic and the fact that obviously at some point it will subside if we wanted to sort of cast you know the markets obviously look six to 18 months into the future looking sure. into six to 18 months in the future where do you think we should be 
investing or potentially investing or what areas interest you? It's a it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I, yeah, obviously, it, you, you, it, it's not too difficult to see what industries will benefit and which will be hurt. Um, so all of the tech companies that are um, benefiting from anything that happens online, retail that happens online, and so on, obviously that's going to do well. Travel is going to be hurt. Uh, entertainment industries are going to be hurt. Sports going to be hurt. Um, you know, it's not too difficult to see that. Um, but the the next question is how much of that is priced in, right? And I guess you the, yeah. you guys are the experts. Um, so I wouldn't really like to say too much without having studied where things are rated and thought very carefully through which segments would benefit. Uh, I think it's very difficult. And overall, I think we are going into an extremely dangerous place. Uh, there's there's a lot of fantasy in the economics world at the moment. I keep on reading this refrain about, don't worry, you know, we're propping the the, the, the economy up by borrowing money as mm. if that has no consequence. This kind of modern monetary theory idea, which to me is just, again, voodoo. There's, there's lots of voodoo around. Voodoo is very popular at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're the experts. I wouldn't like to be wading into the domain of uh, listed security sectors. Sure. Pri- pri- private security services for politicians sounds like it might be a growth sector. <laughs> hot, hot investment sector <laughs> and for World Health Organization officials. <laughs> they need to be protected from angry pants. So we normally finish up with a media pick and, and um, given the the uh the, the this very serious topic that we, we're talking about here i wasn't going to ask you for one but actually you have been recommending a perfect book that people should read so uh, seeing that i was so bad at recommending stocks i'm going to recommend two books oh fantastic uh, <laughs> for spirit of the times the book of covid is gulag archipelago by alexander salt Sol- um, it, for me, perfectly captures the, the, the nature of the process that we're going through. Um, I mean, people talk about Orwell, um, uh, and I think that's, that's a good call as well. Basically, instead of um, Orwell, instead of being interpreted as a, as a warning of uh, what not to do, has been interpreted as an instru- instruction manual. You know? <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, Gulag Archipelago is the top read of COVID. Um, and then in terms of what has gone wrong on the science and what the approach that should have been taken, I recommend a book written in, I think it was published in 2013. I might be wrong on the date. Uh, uh, the Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. Um, I regard that book as, as a book that will one day be acknowledged as one of the most important books ever written. Um, it represents a, a fusion of four major um, disciplines in, in, in intellectual endeavor um, uh, explains the the evolutionary nature of not just uh, biological creatures but of thought and knowledge itself of computer code as well so unifying uh, epistemology Darwinian evolution and um, coding um, it follows from an earlier book that uh, laid that groundwork called The Fabric of Reality, written some 10 years before, and is really an, a further explanation. But it can be picked up as a book in and of itself. You don't have to have read The Fabric Re- of Reality first, although I would thoroughly recommend that. I read them in the reverse order of publication. It was no problem. But I, I regard that book as one of the most profound books ever written and, and the, 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 the work of a great mind. Uh, for those who are not into the physics scene, 
David Deutsch was the the progenitor of the of quantum computing, um, and um, has a very interesting uh, history of uh, coming up with uncanny insights, not only of the in in the world of physics, which is his own narrow domain, but in the broader fields of of computation, epistemology, and uh, Darwinian evolution. I am so pleased that I asked you that question. That is absolutely fantastic. So for people who want to find you, who want to find you in social media and your website for, for the work that you're doing, tell us a bit about where, where and how they can do that. Well, I hope they do rather more than find us. I hope that they join us and that they join the effort. Um, the website is www.pandata19, the number's 19.org. The um, uh, Twitter handle and Facebook handle are identical at Pandata19, um, and those are so. Those are three particularly good ways. Any any one of them will point you in the direction of the other. Um, so I would uh, start there, but I mean it in all earnestness. Uh, we we are uh, recruiting. We've 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 added a lot of uh, top-notch scientists to our grouping. In addition to the scientific advisory board members, we've added science writers. Uh, we added media people. And there's going to be a lot more required if we are to shake the world out of this mass hysteria that makes the Dutch tulip bubble look like child's play. That's absolutely incredible. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for all your thoughts. Best of luck with your efforts in the future. Just one final thought before you go. What's, what follows after this? What, what are you looking to do? I believe education is a big interest of yours. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, it's funny. I, a lot of the concerns about how education has been articulated in the world um, have now come to, come to uh, bear upon us right now. I mean, the universities have been singularly useless. The whole academic process has been useless. Peer review process has been found to be terribly flawed. The depth of conflict in the research institutes of, uh, um, of universities and the extent of corporate capture of those institutions is, is quite concerning and disturbing. Also, I would say the low quality of the average researcher. I mean, we, we run it in, into it in our own uh, scientific community here when we've gone to meet with uh, members of the various government agencies. It's astonishing what they don't know. You know, they're happy to build a model. Um, but then I haven't really even processed the intellectual steps of what you would use to check whether those model assumptions are actually playing out in practice. They do not possess the statistical toolbox to do it. So there's there's kind of this really second-rate uh, intellectual work going on. Um, and so, yes, I would like to apply my mind. Uh, I've had a dream of applying my mind to to education as a sector and how it could be articulated better. I think there's there, there are problems of increasing balkanization, which have caused people to be unable to think critically. You, they go down too many, what are essentially rabbit holes of research uh, and start disappearing into worlds that exist entirely in terms of a local jargon and have no real bearing to reality. And then there's a broader philosophical problem. Um, this, uh, the currency of critical theory and postmodern theory in the universities is quite ghastly. Um, and it basically separates the people who are infected by these uh, memes from reality and makes it impossible for them to do anything that is of any use to the real world. And I, I, I don't think these, uh, these problems can be under, understated, the balkanization and the postmodernism jointly. 
they've, and what we're seeing now is the extent to which they've even infected the sciences, which we previously, I might have told you, were immune to these problems. They most clearly are not. And um, so I, I would, yeah, if, if, I, if I survive this, uh, this uh, uh, effort right now, I would, uh, after my private equity career, like to, like to apply my mind to education and see what can be done there. At the very least, a book could be a cathartic uh, exercise for you. And I'm sure you <laughs> might, might never end it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for coming on the show and for it's giving me a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Nick. Real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. All the very best. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.